Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, and wildlife restoration. If you have a fascination with the natural world or would like to learn how you too can make a difference, regardless of your current circumstances, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And if you come along for this journey, I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us all. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoy what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and share the episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Marav Vonshak. Marav is an ecologist, naturalist, and citizen science organizer located in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's the founder of BioBlitz Club, a group that organizes BioBlitzes to raise awareness for environmental causes, often participating in partnership with specific organizations, or simply to raise community awareness of nature that's nearby. If you are unaware of what a BioBlitz is, they are focused efforts to document all living organisms within a defined location and period of time. I've participated in a few of these now and must say that I'm hooked. BioBlitzes provide a sense of exploration and discovery. They get you out in nature and have a wonderfully enthusiastic community to learn from. Back to Marav, prior to founding BioBlitz Club, she received a doctorate in ecology at Tel Aviv University and had postdoctoral fellowships at Tel Aviv University and Stanford University. She's an expert in ant biology, having studied impacts of alien ant species and human disturbance on ant communities. Marav has a wealth of ecological information and is also a curator on iNaturalist. Today we discuss the story of Marav's formation of BioBlitz Club, some of the surprising discoveries from these events, including in highly urban areas, how to get people engaged in caring about nature, her ant research, and how you can even identify ant species by smell how to use bioblitzes and citizen science as part of a broader conservation awareness playbook, and much more. So without further delay, Marav Vonshak. All right, so Marav, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. So I've over the last few years that I've been in the Bay Area, I've seen your work through a lot of different organizations. You seem to really donate a lot of your time in outreach efforts, uh, you know, with San Francisco Bay Bird Observatory. I've seen you through Open Space, through the uh, Eddie Dunbar's organization, the Insect Sciences Museum, and other places. And I've really enjoyed your presentations and learning from you. And, and thankfully, just last week, I was able to participate in my first BioBlitz that you coordinated just here in Campbell, California. So I was wondering if you could just start by giving the audience a summary of what a BioBlitz is and why you facilitate them. Sure. That BioBlitz, by the way, was number 40. I just realized. I'll start with the beginning. So a BioBlitz is an event where we go out to usually a park or a nature preserve or a specific area, and we try to document as many species as possible within a limited time frame. So for our events, usually it's about two hours, but we always stay longer because it's too much fun. So we come early, we stay longer, and... But the goal is to try and document as many species as possible. So we look at the plants, we look at the birds, we look for mammals, insects, spiders, anything, mushrooms, slime molds, if it's the right season. I think that's the fun part about it, that it's not just limited to one group of organisms. It's about everything. So when we go and explore an area, we look at all these different species. And the way we usually do it is that we have a group of volunteers that uh, many of them are experts in their own field, like botanists or 
uh, birders or entomologists specifically interested in insects. So they lead small groups in the area and they help them use iNaturalist, which is the app that we use. They help them find different creatures and plants and other things. And it's really fun. And speaking of bio-blitzing, I think I heard a California scrub jay behind you. I think so, yeah. <laughs> My window is open. Yes, it's right there. I actually haven't seen it ever sitting on my uh, wires there. But, yeah, that yeah. was a good call I just made. So so that's going to add yeah. to the ambiance here of, uh, yeah. of BioBlitz. That's our first species of today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I could play you an amazing recording I made last night. So I was sitting here working last night, and then I heard this crazy noise coming from outside. And of course, I recorded it. And then I went out with my flashlight. It was like a whole bunch of raccoons sitting on my fence, but they're like fighting or, I don't know, arguing about something very loudly. Well, I, I suspect you're going to upload it to iNaturalist. It's already there. Ah, okay. Yes. Raccoons are really fascinating. I'm, and I don't want to go off on that tangent right now, but uh, there's been more and more research on how intelligent they are. Like they've always been known to be an intelligent creature, mm -hmm. but uh, they're, they're up there uh, on the spectrum for sure. Back to bioblitzes. So, mm -hmm. one of the uh, so many questions I have on this whole concept. So, I think I first heard the term only five, six years ago. Did did such a thing exist prior to iNaturalist? Yeah. So people used to do it using just you know paper and pencil and go out to the field uh, with maps and everything. But I think it was probably more a professional thing then. I mean, I'm not sure. But now when we have iNaturalist, it's just made life so much easier because all you need to do is to have this free smartphone app. Uh, we ask people to download it to their smartphone before the event and create a username. And that's it. That's all they need. Uh, because what we do is we set up a project page before the event starts and we use a specific polygon for the area that we want to explore and a specific time frame. And then any observation made within those parameters, the polygon and the time frame, would get entered automatically into our project. So the people participating on their end, they only need to go out and make an observation. And once they save it, they share it with this huge community, and it will also get added into our project. So at the end of the event, uh, you could see this beautiful map of all the little points that everyone collected. So you could see uh, the diversity, the biodiversity of that park, and you feel it firsthand, you know, you get the feeling of what biodiversity is and how you could find all these different species. So when we, we take people out, we usually don't go to, you know, a remote preserve. Our mission, the way I see it for South Bay Bioblitzes, is to go to regular places, you know, to city parks and to places that are very accessible, that everybody could get there either by uh, foot or by public transportation or by car. But it's nearby neighborhoods. Our public parks are actually amazing places to go because they have so much um, native vegetation planted in them. Not all the parks, of course. Many of them just have lawn and roses, like my neighborhood park. But uh, many of the parks have many native oaks and other vegetation. And they have, uh, we have three creeks here in San Jose. And although they're not in amazing shape, they are great. They're so great. We have a family of beaver that 
we watched, we didn't see the beavers, but we went to document last week. So we go to our local parks and because they have all that native vegetation, that vegetation supports so many different insects that depend on these trees and bushes and whatever. And in turn, because you have all these insects, then they are the food for different birds and lizards and other animals. So you have this beautiful diversity. Of course, a large part of the diversity is non-native species, which we also document because that's really important too. But many of them are native species and you can find really interesting and even rare species in the middle of the city in a random park. I find these events really interesting because you never know what you'll find, even if you go to you know, the most random park in San Jose, you might find some really cool things. And I could give you some examples if you'd like. I definitely want to ask about the examples, but before we go there, mm-hmm. sure. I, I just wanted to add that I have always watched nature documentaries on TV and you get this sense of you have to go to some remote, pristine location to be able to see interesting wildlife. By the nature of the TV shows, they don't want to show that maybe there's a city in the background or there's a road right next to it. They purposely edit that out or avoid it. Or sometimes they are just in a pristine location. But I really like your approach because it does show that nature's all around us. It's accessible and it makes it more tangible to people who perhaps are in the city and don't necessarily think about nature as often. When I heard that that was your approach originally, you know, I'm all in on that. I think that that's one of the key things to help engage the public more. You read my mind, though, about I wanted to ask you what some of your most surprising finds have been on these bio blitzes. Yeah, so maybe before that, I want to add to what you said that I think it also helps me. So I grew up in a large city where, you know, you have to look for nature to find it. And I feel the same here. I live in the middle of San Jose. If you look at the aerial photo, then it's just so depressing. It's just gray with concrete. But if you look at the same aerial photo, and I love to do that when I give my uh, citizen science uh, presentation, you look at the same aerial photo on iNaturalist. You see all these dots. You see all the places where people documented biodiversity, you know, different plants and animals and everything else. And it makes me feel better because when I go out for a walk, even in my neighborhood, I can find so many different things because it opens my eyes to all these different mushrooms and birds that you know, sometimes I ignore and sometimes I'm like really interested. I started listening to bird calls and then it's like, oh yeah, it's a jay. And, and, and I have like some sort of a disease or something when it comes to bird call because I can't turn it off <laughs> no matter where <laughs> I am. I'm, there's like this little subroutine running in my head, always listening, always trying to identify. But you know what? That's, I think, a great example how it opens your ears in this, in this example to something new. So I I was kind of ignoring birds for a while. I mean, I like all animals and I studied biology and I worked in a zoo for years and, you know, I, I know birds, but I kind of ignore them. A while ago, a few months ago, I started, you know, listening more, maybe because I was stuck here at home walking in my neighborhood. I started listening more and it's just amazing how much you could learn from not being able to recognize any bird call to just recognize at least a few of, you know, the birds that live around me. But also, once you start listening, you discover new things. Like I was walking the other day, last week. I do roadkill surveys. I always listen to birds where I go. And I heard this call that kind of sounded like a ground squirrel, but 
it wasn't. It was something slightly different. So I started recording the call on my, with my phone. And then I was looking around to see where it's coming from. And then I saw it was a chipmunk. So I never heard those before. I didn't know what they sound like. But I could actually see that chipmunk way up high on the hill. I could see it calling, sitting on a tree and calling. And that was really awesome. It's like, okay, now I know how this. So listening to birds opened your eyes to a mammal. Yeah. You know, I know how um, ground squirrels sound like. So I, I do listen to them. Yeah, I think it's just awesome how you change the way that you look at things or hear things. Well, and of course, the next step after really starting to understand the calls and the songs of the birds is getting into the behavioral aspects of those calls and songs. And you can start to pick up on the fact that there's a predator nearby, uh, or maybe the jays are mobbing an owl, or uh, something has disrupted. They all make their alarm call at the same time, you might know to look up and see that, oh, there's a, uh, a red-tailed hawk <laughs> coming in. So yeah, it's really, it's a lot of fun. And there's uh, always another layer of discovery. Yeah. And I often think about all the people that walk there and would never look up, right? You hear uh, crows or ravens calling and you know that something is happening and there is like a red-tailed hawk somewhere being mobbed. And people would just walk and never look up. They, they miss all that activity. But it's the same with, you know, just looking at different mushrooms when you walk. And then you realize that, oh, these different trees, they have mushrooms growing on them. Or, you know, all these different insects. Like, so many things are happening. And most people would never see that. So when we get people out to our events, I think many of them are amazed by what you could find in just like a city park. We, so, we show them salamanders and slugs and snails and spiders and all sorts of things that live under logs and rocks and, you know, in a random city park. Mm-hmm. And you can find endangered species. You can find, well, lots of non-natives, but so many interesting ones. Well, that might be a good segue back to the original question. And that's, you know, what are some of the most exciting finds that you've had here in these city parks? So one of my favorite is a bolas spider, which is this tiny little spider. It's a really funny one. So, and it's a kind of funny story. We're doing a pre-hike for one of the bioblitzes in a park called Overfeld Park in East San Jose. So really not an exciting place. Everyone would say that. But there's a nice uh, native plant garden in the park. I was looking at some oaks and then I saw something. So basically, they look like bird poop. They camouflage as bird poop on the leaves. She was sitting on a coast live oak leaf. I thought, okay, this might be spider, but it's probably bird poop. Because I've been looking for these spiders for so many years and I've never seen one. I tried to look closer And I still wasn't sure. So I had to take the leaf off the plant and look closer. And still the spider wouldn't move. It was just there. And only when I got it really close to my eyes, I could see that it has tiny eyes and little legs, but it still wouldn't move. I had to poke it gently with my finger and then it moved a little bit, but that's it. And I was like, I was so excited when I realized it is a boa spider. I got really excited about it, but I was there with a bird of a friend. And she was like, oh, it's a little spider. It looks like bird poop, you know, whatever. And I'm like, no, this is really exciting. This is important. This is great. She's like, oh, I don't know. And then I took some photos and I was like super excited about it. And 
as far as I could find out, it was the first boa spider recorded in Santa Clara County since like 1917 or something like that, as far as I could find out online. But anyway, it's, it's not a usual thing to find because they're so well camouflaged, just so difficult to find. And they're probably out there. They also have really interesting biology. So it's, it's a really interesting spider. Would you be able to share the iNaturalist observation for that sure. finding? And I'll make sure I include it then in the show notes that I publish. That yeah. might be interesting to take a look at. Yeah, I'd love that. Any other surprising finds? Like you mentioned that you sometimes even find endangered species. So apparently there's uh, an endangered slug, an endangered snail that live here in, you know, in the county. And we sometimes we find them in different parks. So that's pretty cool. And we try to document those as well. One time we found a baby um, hummingbird. Probably it was Anna's hummingbird, fledgling. That I think it was trapped in something. I don't remember exactly, but one of our volunteers took it to a shelter. But it was just so beautiful to look at it. It was so tiny. It was already a fledgling, so it had all its feathers. But one of the volunteers was holding it and everybody looked at it. It was just beautiful to see. Another thing I noticed about the event that you had recently is you were really encouraging families to come out. And I was thinking about how it really does drive this sense of discovery that I think kids in particular would enjoy. The challenge, at least with my kids, would be overcoming the inertia of staying home, like you know, convincing them to get out and actually start this. And once they start, I think they would have a great time. I realize that there may be two different answers to my next question because you have pre-COVID and post-COVID, but let's just think in pre-COVID terms for a moment. You know, What have been some effective ways for you to help get younger generations engaged in these events? So I love getting families and I love getting kids on our events. They're always the best in finding everything. Like they would walk and see all these different things that nobody else would see. Definitely not their parents. We often go and explore creeks, uh, especially Coyote Creek in San Jose. So we give kids aquatic nets uh, that they could dip in the creek and get all sorts of little aquatic bugs and we help them identify them and we look under a magnifying glass or uh, even through my phone, which has these powerful macro lenses. You could see how aquatic insects breathe and how they move and how they swim right under your phone. And it's, it's amazing to see that. And kids love it. Like as soon as you give them the net, they get crazy and they find lots of stuff. The problem is definitely getting them out of their house. But luckily, that's not my problem. It's my problem. <laughs> it's my kids. When they get there, they get excited. We give them little flyers with the most common species or species that we think are important or interesting in that area, in that specific time frame, uh, which I think is very helpful to kind of get started to learn new species because you have a little photo and you have the name of that specific species. And kids love it. It's like a treasure hunt. They go out and they try to look for a plant or a bird or an insect, and they try to identify them. And it's really nice to see how they do that. I think that gets them engaged pretty quickly. You know, I, I know I always was interested in nature as a kid, not to the degree I am now, but as an adult, the things that I find most exciting when I discover them, you know, novelty, of course, is always interesting. But 
I think if I were to be more specific than just saying novelty, it's an example like that spider that you mentioned that has such a crazy adaptation, you know, to look like bird poop. It can disguise itself. I'm assuming based on that adaptation that it probably doesn't build a web. It's probably an ambush predator. Is that right? So it's even more specific than that. That spider is really interesting. And I hope I remember the biology correctly. But the large spider that we find, the boa spider that looks like poop, it's only the females. And the males are pretty bizarre. I think it's one of the only spiders, or at least the only one I, I know of, that the males hatch from the eggs as adults, which is bizarre. So they're very, very small. And in spiders, you often find males to be much smaller than the female. I think this one is unique, that they hatch from the eggs as an adult. And then the female goes through a few molts. So most usually insects and spiders and you know all these arthropods, they have to molt in order to grow because they have exoskeleton. So the female does go through a few molts. And then the adult female, she uh, secretes a pheromone that imitates a moth pheromone. So she attracts moth to her and she makes a little ball of silk and uh, glue attached to a string. And then she would catch them with that ball of silk and glue, which is really interesting and unique. And she does that partly by uh, imitating the moth pheromone. And I think the immature female and the male imitate a different moth pheromone. So they have a biological bait and they craft what sounds like a modified net yeah. and they draw in the moth and, <laughs> and catch it that way. That's, that's insane to think about. But anyway, where I was going with that train of thought was, you know, like those are the sorts of things that I love because I think I'm a bit of a systems thinker. I like to think about how things interrelate and, you know, how they got to be the way they are based on evolution and the environment. For kids, back to, to that subject, what do you find they're really drawn towards? Is it the flashier things, the colorful things? Uh, you know, what, what have you found really inspires them when they're on a BioBlitz? So kids and most people, you know, they're mostly interested in cute animals, in fluffy mammals and pretty birds. But I think my part is to show them why other things are interesting, to show them the diversity of insects and how amazing they are when you look at them through a magnifying glass. They're so interesting. They have all these details. And when you tell them stories about these Species. When you know, I think when you know more about something, it makes it more interesting. Just like this boa spider, that you know, it might look like a bird poop, but if you think about the adaptations and if you know something about its biology, it's just so interesting. Yeah, that's great. I, the idea of telling a story along with what you find must require a broad base of knowledge because you don't know what you're going to, I mean, I guess there's some common things that you know you'll find at most places and you kind of have an idea based on what others have seen on iNaturalist or what the habitat is. But uh, you do have a very diverse background in biology and entomology. You hinted at some of it already. A couple of things, you know, one, maybe we can transition into what your background is here in a moment. But after all of this exposure to all of these different taxa over the years, yeah, this is probably going to be like picking your favorite child, but which taxa are the ones that you seem to be drawn to more? You get more excited about when you find them. Yeah. So that's so many different taxa that I like. I mentioned that I, as a kid, I worked in a zoo. So I really loved the fluffy mammals there. But then I also started working with 
different arthropods. So I, I love different spiders. As a kid, I studied this spider in, in the school I was in, in my elementary school and middle school. It was a project-based school. So every year we had to do like a project to study something else. And I studied spiders. And it was really interesting because it was a spider that nobody knew anything about. So everything I found out was new. So I really love spiders. And here I really enjoy the tarantula uh, migration. It's not really migration, but the male tarantula is wandering around in the fall. And unfortunately, I haven't seen one this fall with all the fires and smoke and everything else going on. I don't get to go outside as much as I'd like to, but I really enjoy uh, watching these tarantulas go. I really like ants. So I studied ants for my PhD and my postdoc study, and I think they're really interesting. I also like, I don't know, so many different things, bats and anteaters and most insects. And I love nudibranchs. Oh, yeah. Maybe there could be a future discussion that we have where we get into some of the interesting things <laughs> specific to each of those taxa. I was also going to comment that one of the things I've really become much more knowledgeable about from you is galls. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that galls existed and that they had a unique sort of life history in terms of, of how they work, but uh, I had no idea there were so many. Could you just give a short description of what a gall is? Sure. So, and by yeah. the way, that's that's G A L L, not G U L L, in case it's not coming across clearly on the recording. Yeah, and these are much easier to identify, I think, than the other galls. Um, I think galls are really interesting, and I only started getting interested in them a couple of years ago, uh, maybe three years ago, when we had to organize a bio blitz in the summer, and there's not much to see in the summer. It's so dry, and it's difficult to find insects and other interesting things. But the galls are there, and they are so awesome. So galls are uh, little structures induced by usually an insect on a plant. So if we talk about wasp galls, then imagine a, a tiny little wasp. They're very small, and they prefer oaks. So a little wasp will lay its egg on an oak, maybe on a leaf, and the larva that will start chewing on that leaf the lava makes the plant or induces the plant to create a little structure for it. So we could add a link to some photos because these are really colorful and pretty. And some of these structures look like a little sea star. Some of them look like a little plate. And they have very intricate designs and they're really interesting. And the diversity is just amazing. There are over 90 species of uh, wasp galls just in California. Uh, we have a nice diversity of oaks here and so many of these galls. So one valley oak tree, for example, could have dozens of different species uh, of galls and could be even thousands of each. So you could have many, many, many galls of specific species. Some of them are more common, others are not as common, but they're really fun. I think part of it is because it's rather easy to identify them unless it gets complicated, because it's not always that easy. Sometimes they get parasitized by another wasp, because that little lava sitting inside the gall is, I mean, it seems like she's well protected, but it's not that well protected. So little wasps, little parasitic wasps can find it in there and lay their eggs in the same gall. It's fascinating to me. And I know I've seen galls on coyote brush, 
And I learned from one of your pamphlets that my coffee berry, which is a, a native California plant, can, can get a gall as well. Uh, it makes me wonder, are, do other parts of the world, other parts of the United States have galls as well? Are, are they as diverse as what we have here in California? So I think the gall wasps, the one that induce galls on oaks, are especially diverse in California. Uh, they are found in other places around the world, but they're not the only insects or organism that induces galls. There are many others, like the moth that you have on your coffee berry. So that one is made by a moth. And then the gall midges, which is like a tiny little fly. There are mites, little arachnids that induce galls. So there are you know, different groups of insects that could do that and other kind of wasps. So in a way, they're very diverse in California. There are many different species, and there's a great book that includes many of them. But That's probably the, the UC Press book. Yeah, which is out of print, so it's yeah. really expensive. It is. I'm hoping they have another printing of it. They're supposed yeah. to. Yeah, okay. so they're supposed to have a new print of the Gall book, hopefully soon. That's such a great series of field guides. I, I just keep buying more and more and more. Yeah, I just got a new one last week. Yeah. The uh, California Insects, the second edition. And it's such a nice book. It's beautiful. So, yeah, highly yes. recommend it. I just wanted to say that the entire series is great. Like, you could learn so much just by getting the book to your favorite group. Right. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll definitely link to the book you mentioned and also to some pictures of the different goals that, that you mentioned. And if you don't mind, I know you have a pamphlet for at least for California goals uh, on your website, and I can just link straight to that as well. Yeah, I actually have two. There's one for the spring goals and one for the fall goals because they're very different. So many of these species have two uh, generations. Uh, so they will look completely different. They might be on a different part of the plant in the spring and uh, like on a leaf in the spring and the stem in the fall, for example. Mm. And the wasp itself looks different, which I think is amazing. So many of them were originally described as two separate species. And it took a long time to realize it's the same species. And one more thing I wanted to touch back on. You mentioned that your doctorate and postdoctorate work was on ants. And so speaking of these sort of really interesting adaptations, or, or even if they aren't adaptations, they're just interesting to observe, like galls. I saw you present about urban ants over the summer. And one of the really surprising things to me was that you can actually partially identify an ant. You know, they're small. They're kind of, you really have to get a good look at some of them to, to tell what species it is, but you can partially identify them by smell. I, you know, that's not something I ever would have thought of doing is smelling an ant. So I wanted to ask you more about that. I, it seems like that's common knowledge these days. There's even an ant called like the odorous house ant, which gives rise to the fact that they do have a fragrance. But how do you go about smelling an ant? So... Yes, yeah, smell is a great way to tell the difference between, you know, different ant species. The odorous house ant is a great, great example. It's also called the banana cream pie ant, which I never smelled a banana cream pie, but I guess it smells great. So these ants, they smell kind of sweet and you could squeeze the ant and then they release their alarm pheromones, which in this case is kind of sweet, but you could also just gently with them till they feel uncomfortable and then they will release that too. But it, it is useful because we have the odorous house ant, which is a very common ant 
in some kitchens, in your backyard maybe, and in nature preserves. It's a native species. But we also have the Argentine ant, which is the most common non-native species in the area that you will find in the exact same habitats. And they look pretty similar in size and also in color. So a good way to tell them apart is to take one and squeeze it gently. And if it smells sweet, then it's the odorous house ant. And if it doesn't, it's probably something else. So yeah, I, I often tell people that they should smell their ants to tell what they are. And people love that. You can even taste them. I'm a vegetarian, so, you know, I'm not supposed to. But some people would just taste them. Right. Of course, I've heard of people taking leaves off of plants and crumpling them to see what the fragrance is to help with an identification, you know, things like that. I, I had just never heard anything like that with an ant. And I suppose you have to know a little bit about what you're doing if you're handling an ant. Uh, you, you wouldn't want to pick up a uh, fire ant or a, you know, if you're, if you're in Central or South America, a bullet ant. I, I don't think you'd want to pick one of those up just by looking at it. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, you have to have a little bit of knowledge before you start handling them. Uh, yeah, but I mean, the ants we have here, they don't really sting. They might bite you, uh, but they don't really sting. So you could basically handle any ant you see. And if it does sting you, you should let us know because we might get, you know, <laughs> a new invasive species. So that's always important to know. Handling um, ants in the name of science. Yes. 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 And once you, you handle them, you could get a closer look. So I, I, I always tell people to try and hold them. You should grab their uh, legs uh, with your two fingers and then you could get really nice macro shots of the ant and that would be much easier to identify them too and when we do bio blitzes and and you know insect walks and stuff like that they often let people smell ants and it's lovely definitely an experience that i'm sure people will remember we haven't really gotten into your background i, I hinted at getting into your background earlier so you talked a little bit about your educational background and working at a zoo so it sounds like you were interested in nature from a young age. Was there an experience that got you interested or is it just one of those sort of inherent things? Probably inherent. I'm not sure. I remember that from very young age, I was interested. Like I would collect beetles from, you know, the yard, from the street. And I really liked hiking and going out to nature. But I grew up in a large city, so there wasn't that much nature in there. But still there were, you know, insects and other things. And in my school, we had something like a bug club, like an entomology club that got me really uh, into it. And I really enjoyed that. About what age was that? It was in middle school. So then you went to school and pursued your degree and took it all the way to doctorate and postdoctorate work on ants. I mean, that's probably a long period of time. It's definitely a long period of time to, to devote to that subject. I'm curious, did you, did you ever feel burned out spending so much time with ants in that era? Or did you supplement it with enough other activities that it just, it, it wasn't an issue for you? Well, first, I think ants are so interesting and so exciting that it wasn't too much. And when I did my PhD, it was just so interesting. I started studying invasive ants uh, in Israel and when I started my research, we didn't know of any exciting species living there. But in my proposal, I said, well, we don't know of any really exciting species like, you know, uh, the Argentine ant or fire ants uh, found in Israel. But we should anyway study what we already have and learn more about it. 
And then a year later, we discovered the little fire ant in Israel, which is this really bad uh, invasive species spreading worldwide. When we discovered it, it was probably there for about six years and only found in very few villages, like rural villages. So for my PhD, I, I didn't only study their biology. I studied them, you know, in the field and in the lab and in molecular and chemical analysis and many different things that were all fascinating and wonderful. But I also did a lot of advocacy with government uh, agencies trying to educate people about invasive species and about early management and showing what, them what people do with these species in other places around the world. Unfortunately, <laughs> it was all a waste of time. Now it's uh, so widespread in Israel, it's everywhere. And there's no way to ever get rid of it because with invasive species, you early... Um, action is the, mo the only most important thing and it's just too late so it was really interesting and I was so busy because I was doing both the research and the advocacy and both with, uh, with government agencies but also to the public so I gave many public uh, talks and media interviews and I mean it was huge and it was fascinating and then I moved here to do my postdoc at Stanford 10 years ago And that was really interesting, too. I really enjoyed the research that I did. I was studying the Argentine ants and other invasive species in the area uh, and their effect on local species. When I moved to the lab, I also joined a long-term study in Jasper Ridge, which is Stanford uh, Biological Preserve that is uh, close to the public. It's only open for research. And in 1993, my postdoc advisor, Professor Deborah Gordon from Stanford University. She started uh, a research there with her uh, graduate student tracking the distribution of the Argentine ant in Jasper Ridge. And for many years, it was a graduate uh, student project with different students changing. And then about 12 years ago, it became a citizen science program. So when I joined the lab, I think it was about two years since it became a citizen science project. So instead of graduate students doing the entire study, we have a large group of volunteers. And twice a year, we go out and we document all the different end species in the preserve. So I think that was my fir the first time I actually participated in citizen science study. And I still do it. I I'm still there, part of the organizing committee that is in charge of that survey. And it's a beautiful project. And I really loved it because unlike the academia where it's just you, and even if you collaborate with other people, it's mostly you and either doing you know, field work or lab work or writing. But it's very secluded in a way. And when we did the Jasper Ridge uh, end survey, it was completely different because it's this really great team of people and it's a nice collaboration and... We organize it together. We go out together. I really love that aspect. Did you say that that was your first citizen science project, period? Or I your first so. one you know, specific think, to ants? No, I think it was the first time I actually participated in citizen science. Because, you know, before that, and while I was doing that, I was a real scientist, you know, mm. <laughs> like doing studies. And, you know, I'd, I'd have uh, field assistants, stuff like that. But it's not the same thing. It's It's not like study led by non-academia researchers. 
that actually reminded me of something I meant to say earlier about my first BioBlitz. And that's one of the things I enjoyed most about it was how much enthusiasm and energy that the volunteers had. Uh, just random people showing up to this event were so excited to talk about nature and share their discoveries and share their knowledge. And I realized that's something that's missing in a large part of my life is like that enthusiasm about something. And uh, it really energized me and, it, and it's, it has me excited to participate in more, just seeing that energy that's brought. So you're very successful in that regard. And the other thing that I, I noticed is people all have their own specialized equipment too. So if you're there to learn, you know, you have knowledgeable people. In fact, one of the participants was taking samples from the Creek and looking at them through a microscope. Yeah. So like you can get down to the, to the micro level. And then you have the birders and the other things that, that you said before. So it's just a, a very dynamic environment. Sorry for my little rambling preface, but at what stage then did you start to develop this idea of forming BioBlitz Club? It sounds like one of the triggers for that may have been this experience that you had at Jasper Ridge. Maybe in a way, but what actually led to that is when I finished my postdoc, I wasn't sure what I'm going to do. I started volunteering with many different nonprofits. And the fun thing is that I realized that it's such a small community that, you know, most of the people kind of know each other. And once you get into one organization, it's very easy to get into another organization. So I just started kind of widely volunteering for different organizations. Very early on, I I met uh, someone from Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society. Shani Kleinhaus, the environmental advocate from Santa Clara Valley Audubon Society. And she helped me reach out to different organizations. But also I started helping her volunteering in the environmental advocacy group uh, at Audubon. She asked me to help her uh, building a bird database for Coyote Valley. So, you know, we've been trying to protect Coyote Valley from development for many, many years. And every few years, there was another thing where people tried to build that area. So uh, I started working on creating a database for Audubon, but all the different birds there. And I used all sorts of um, resources. And one of them was iNaturalist, which I, I just started using, I think, at that point. After I finished creating that database that I think had 219 different bird species, I thought that the next step would be to organize a BioBlitz there. I realized that people really don't know where is Coyote Valley. If you're interested in that place, where do you go? How do you visit? And I thought that the BioBlitz would combine a few different things. First, you'll, take, you'll get people out and that will give you a chance to talk about the advocacy and about the different species and why it's important to protect that place. But also, I mean, what would be a better way to get people out to, to see a place and to get to love it if they know where it is and they could experience that place and, and look at the diversity there. The one thing was to get people out to see where Coyote Valley actually is and to learn more about it. The other thing was to actually collect more data because we just didn't have enough data about that area. We had quite a lot of data about the birds, but I felt like we don't know much about other species that live there. And I thought a BioBlitz would be a great way to do it. And I didn't have much experience with either BioBlitz or organizing events or any of these things. It was pretty complicated. 
But it was so much fun that I really want to keep going. I think the other thing, just before that, I realized that I already know so many different people from different organizations and that each have different expertise. You know, some of them are birders and some of them are botanists and entomologists and, you know, with different fields of interest that it would be so awesome if we could all go out together and do stuff and learn from each other. Because, like, I know so many ants, but I don't know so many other things that my entomologist friend know. And, of course, I don't know much about plants or about you know, the birds or there's so much out there to see that I thought we just need uh, some platform to get us out together and learn from each other and, and have fun together. Because, yeah, people are just really excited to be out. And that's one of our challenges now with COVID is that we can organize public events. If you stick with all the guidelines, you could do it. But we get so excited that you have to actually push people away and say, well, you know, keep your distance. But I think it's just the Bible, it's uh, such a fun way to get people out and to experience a place and to document things. And the exploration part has a big part in it too, because you never know what you'll find. We always find interesting things. And, and I think that's also to answer your previous question about the kids. So I think kids really love that part, that, like what will we find, you know? You remind me of kind of a funny thought I'd had over the years because I, I always thought it would be a lot of fun to go on a hike in an interesting area with a geologist, a botanist, an entomologist, and uh, you know a birder. I'm kind of a birder, so I, I would maybe fulfill that role to an extent. And then I realized if we actually did that, we would not make it more than about a quarter of a mile on that hike. Leading field trips, uh, there's sort of this rule of thumb. If you're, if you're on a birding field trip, maybe you'll go about a mile an hour. And if you're out to hike for exercise, maybe you're going two and a half miles an hour, depending on terrain, you know, something like that. So you go from two and a half if you're, if you're on an exercise hike down to maybe a mile per hour if you're a birder. And then you get the plant people, the botanists, looking for native plants. And then you're down to maybe a quarter mile of an hour. <laughs> at that point and then put them all together and just imagine uh but i realize that your events are very different and you do kind of stake out just a, a specific area to to deeply investigate that kind of funny visual aside what you mentioned it, it almost sounds like the beginning of a playbook in that your investigation of coyote valley this is back so coyote valley there's a lot of progress has been made for for people maybe that aren't familiar with the san jose northern california area uh, so Coyote Valley uh, is the last major tract of Santa Clara Valley that is not heavily developed. There's agriculture, but there's always been an eye on commercial developments in the valley. And in recent years, some of it has now been protected. It's been purchased by open space and through partnerships, and it's a huge win. But the reason why it's so important isn't just because it's the last large tract of undeveloped area in Santa Clara Valley. It's also a corridor that connects two different mountain habitats. There's riparian habitat right down the middle. Uh, it's one of these perfect areas where lots of different biomes and habitats converge, and it's this corridor at the same time. And you and others identified that. And part of that playbook is then to get people excited. And a BioBlitz is one of the things you should do. It sounds like that's just a natural activity. So I'm hoping that anyone listening and considering whatever their local 
critical habitat is that needs to be saved that, that perhaps they think of doing the same. So that leads me to my question finally. What suggestions do you have for someone who wants to initiate a bioblitz of their own? Are there resources out there that they can pull from? Yeah, so there are lots of great resources by uh, California Academy of Sciences, which is uh, iNaturalist's home now. Their citizen science group has great resources to how to get started. There's also another group uh, in the East Bay, California Center for Natural History. And they have great resources too. And I can send you some links later of how to get started, how to organize a bioblitz, what you need to do, different things you need to keep in mind. We're thinking of creating something like that, but there's so many great resources that I'm not sure there's a need for more. There's some great videos. There are lots of different tools you could use. So, I mean, the main tool is obviously iNaturalist, and they have really so many different videos and educational uh, stuff because every uh, spring, uh, the last weekend of April, they have this challenge, the City Nature Challenge, which is a worldwide competition between cities using iNaturalist. So trying to find the most species, the most observations, and most people engaged on that website. So they have a specific website with tons of educational resources and how to get started, how to do different things. Sounds great. I'll be sure to link to several of those. It sounds like they're fairly generic. So regardless of where you're at, there's probably tips and lessons and process to draw from. Yeah. So you could use it wherever you are and, and you'll always find interesting things. And I think it's a great way to get people out. But I wanted to say something else. So you mentioned Coyote Valley and, and what we do there. So since that first BioBlitz, we did quite a few more in Coyote Valley in different sections. So the group that I work most with is uh, Keep Coyote Creek Beautiful. And we organize many events together. They are mostly active along Coyote Creek. So Coyote Creek runs through Coyote Valley. And we organize events on different sections uh, of that creek, uh, both in Coyote Valley and inside like downtown San Jose and other places. And we often get, you know, the same people once they join us, then they're hooked and they'll be back like on a different event. And it's interesting because you could see like different sections of the creek and you could see the same place on different seasons. You'll get lots of different things. As I mentioned, we look at different aquatic invertebrates that live inside the creek. And these could serve as bioindicators. So if you know who lives inside a creek, you know something about the uh, water quality because some of these species are more sensitive and they won't be able to survive if the water is too warm or too polluted or has different things in it. And other species are more generalist, so you'll find them in, even in like downtown San Jose. I imagine that data set's going to be useful over the next several years with the draining of the downstream reservoir, uh, the Anderson Lake. You know, I suspect that the water quality in Anderson Reservoir may change as it lowers as they get down into the uh the lower part and then i think they're also supplementing some of the stream flow to help the the fish population with a different water source so i i'm just pontificating that uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out in terms of the biodiversity along coyote creek yeah definitely it will be interesting to see changes and to see what will happen the next few years so i'm glad we have this pretty nice data set now 
we also started following new properties. So Open Space Authority and POST, Peninsula Open Space Trust, and the city of San Jose, they bought a few uh, properties in Coyote Valley, as you mentioned. And we already started organizing bioblitzes in these uh, properties to see what the baseline is, where we start, because some of these are basically alfalfa fields or, you know, like agricultural fields. Some are more interesting. So the, the last one was uh, Laguna Seca. That is the largest wetland in, in the area. And that was amazing that it's now protected. So we already had this one bioblitz there, maybe two, I'm not sure. I've been there quite a few times and uh, we're hoping to organize many more bioblitzes there. That's a really interesting area. So I want to say something about something you said earlier, that it would be great to go out with a botanist and a birder and, you know, a geologist. So that's what I do. Uh, in the past, I don't know, five years, six years, I've been teaching a class in Death Valley by San Jose State University. That's what they've been doing every year since 1937, other than last year because of COVID. And in the class, we have a geologist, a botanist, a zoologist, and two entomologists. And we go out and we get San Jose State students to camp out for like a whole week. And every day we go out and we explore another area and we talk about the geology, about the plants, about everything. And it's the best thing ever. I think for my own personal interest, because it's, I guess I would call myself a naturalist because kind of everything nature is interesting. Uh, if you could throw a meteorologist in as well. Now, granted, Death Valley, it may be a little monotonous, but but still, I think uh, that would be the the pinnacle uh, mm-hmm. of an experience for me. But that sounds really, really interesting. And it's open to the public. So it's open to a specific number of students, but we also have an amazing group of community members that join us. And most of them we call repeaters because they come back year after year for up to like 40 years. Wow. I mean, it's an amazing group. And the same with the professors. A couple of them have been teaching that for like 40 years. I had this misconception of Death Valley, not having grown up in California and not having known really anything about desert habitats. And yeah, I just always assumed it was just desolate, dead location. And I went on a sort of similar field trip as to what you described through a community college a few years ago, where we had a geologist and a biologist. And that, that was it. Anyways, very eye-opening to me just to see because all it takes in an environment like that is a little bit of water. And, you know, some of that water perhaps is subsurface, but, you know, it's enough to create some vegetation and it's the oasis effect and lots of really interesting things then in those areas. And then, of course, even outside of those areas, you have the species that are just so highly adapted to the unique, difficult, salty soil Mm -hmm. environment that you have. If and when it's safe to have that class again, I'm personally going to look for that. So it's every year on the San Jose State uh, spring break. And I think you'd love it if you join. So I briefly mentioned the fact that you started this organization and the website's bioblitz.club and you rely on a lot of volunteers how do you keep it running? Is it is it entirely your personal passion? Do you get grants to cover the costs? Like, can you tell me just a little bit about how that works? Yeah, I started the, the organizing the Bible. It's about three years ago. A year ago, my husband gave me um, a birthday present. He developed a website, Bablets Club, and also made me some cute business cards and pins to go with, you know, branding the website. That's basically it. So it's me 
organizing these bioblitzes. But now we have a home for everything. So I have all the different bioblitz events and insect walks and everything else that I organize on my website and also on a Facebook page that we later created. Yeah, so I have the, the website and the Facebook page to uh, advertise our activity. But I work with different organizations. I mostly work with Keep Caddy Creek Beautiful. And we just got a large grant from OSA to organize more bioblitzes. So uh, I work with different organizations and then they get the funding. So I often team with them to write the grants, like with OSA and with uh, Audubon Society and with others. But other people just hire me as like a consultant to organize bioblitzes for them. And everyone else is a volunteer, which I really appreciate. I mean, I think it's amazing here that people volunteer to so many different things. Some of the people that volunteer with me, I volunteer with them on their events, you know. And I'm happy to organize insect walks and other things. So in some, for some organizations, I, I do it as a volunteer. And for other organizations, if they can pay, then I get paid for it. But and grant writing is sort of the unglamorous <laughs> hard work that happens behind the scenes. I apologize for asking this question because I know, I mean, I haven't found anyone who enjoys it. Did you learn through experience? Did you take any classes? You know, how did you get to a point where you're comfortable at least in grant writing? Oh, I'm not sure I'm comfortable, but <laughs> so I, I team with other people. Like I did write some grants uh, also when I was in the academia and maybe I took a class there. I'm not sure. But I think it's something you need to learn from experience and from working with other people. So now I'm, I'm lucky to team with great people that do most of the work and I do my part. I'm really glad that we got funded to go for another year because I think this, these events are great. And I'm glad that other people think so too because they decided to fund us. It was very competitive, so I'm really glad we got it. Another really interesting project that I'm involved with that includes both citizen science and advocacy. A few years ago, in November 2017, Midpen Trail Patrol volunteer realized that there are lots of dead newts on the road. Her name is Ann Parsons. And she realized that there are many dead newts uh, on the road around Lexington Reservoir and Alma Bridge Road and also on the trails nearby. So she started documenting them. She's uh, very active on iNaturalist. So she started documenting these dead newts using iNaturalist. Uh, for that season, she just got there, I think, from time to time. But by the next season, 2018-2019, she did it very methodically. So she walked the road, which is about four miles long, the section where we find dead newts. It's about uh, four miles long along Lexington Reservoir. And she walked it... Uh, once a week and then twice a week in peak season where there are many newts. And she documented about 4,800 dead newts that season. And I helped her a bit. And then the next year, she wasn't able to do the research herself. She organized a group of volunteers and we all surveyed the road together and documented another 5,200 dead newts. So in total, we have close to 11,000 dead newts documented on the road specifically, which is the second highest mortality rate uh, worldwide of any amphibian, which is just crazy. And it's right here. So what she did when she started documenting them is not just the documentation part, 
but she also started advocating for the nudes and she went to Midpen and to Post and to other organizations and notified them about that problem. And then later on, she contacted me at some point, I think the next season. And I, I had my contacts in Audubon Society. So the advocacy group there started working on that as well. She started advocating for that and also documenting what was going on. And Midpen hired consultants to try and figure out what was going on. But it all changed, I think, recently. So uh, Mid-Peninsula Open Space District had a board meeting about the news just a couple of weeks ago. And it was really interesting to see how things changed. Like, they spent so much time during the board meeting just saying how important the citizen science work here is and how amazing the study is and how great it's what, what we've all been doing and the advocacy and the research. But the bottom line is that we expect to find 5,000 more newts dead on the road this year because there's no solution that is going to be even tested this year. So Midpen had decided to go into a population study with Post and with the consultant company. And we hope that once they get their data, that next year they'll start looking for a solution. I guess in general, what I can say that it's a really interesting study and it's a great example for what citizen science could do because using iNaturalist, you get such a strong database of close to 11,000 observations of dead newts on a specific road. You could see exactly where each one of them was found. You could verify each and every observation because you have photos. So it's not just what we felt we found, it's there. And we also document many other roadkills on the road, many amphibians and reptiles, snakes and lizards of different species, and many insects and mammals and birds. We document all of them. So it creates this really interesting database. But I think it's also interesting because there's no simple solution. In some similar cases around the world, people would go on like rainy nights and help the amphibian cross the road. Because what we have here is we have a population of newts of two different species, California newt and rough skin newt, that live on the hills around the reservoir. And after the first rain, they start migrating into the uh, lake and into the creeks to reproduce. They get hit on the road. So there, there's a road that goes all around that reservoir, and that's where they, they get hit. So presumably this had been happening for years before it was discovered. Or do you think that the migration routes have changed? I think it's probably have been going on for a long time. I'm not sure if traffic has been the same all the time or if... So people go there uh, for fishing, like people that drive that road. They go for fishing. There's a boat club, a few properties of people that live there. And sometimes you'll get traffic from Highway 17. If it's really jammed, people might try to get on that road, uh, even though I don't know how, how it could solve anything. Yeah, and lots of people go there for hiking. There are a few hiking trails, and there are always people there on the trail. And people are just not aware of the problem. Uh, in the middle of one of these, the trailhead parking lot, it's not a lot, but there's like a street parking, there could be dozens of dead newts, and nobody noticed them. Very few people even realize that they're there. When you drive, there's almost no way to tell that you're going to run over a newt. So there's very little awareness. I think now with, with our study, there's more awareness. I'm not sure people that go there know about it, but many people in the 
conservation community and mm. you know nonprofit community many many people know about it and we're hopeful that one day we will have a solution yeah there's a lot more awareness these days of wildlife overpasses and culverts and things like that and and that can be challenging to I mean, depending on the topography to, to build it in the first place, but then mm -hmm. also to ensure that the wildlife will, will use it. And it sounds like you have a situation here where it's a really very dispersed sort of uh, migration. Uh, so you'd have challenges in diverting the newts to one culvert or two culverts or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I started saying earlier, that I think one of the things that makes it so interesting is that there's no easy solution. It's not that they only cross for a few nights a year so you could go there and help them. And it's not just one specific area that you could solve. It's mm -hmm. in quite a few large areas along that road that we see very high mortality. And then there are things that could be done, just that it will probably take more time. So one thing I like to ask all of my guests is if you have any influential resources or books that you would recommend to people, like something that perhaps you find yourself going back to time and time again to help you. I mean, you mentioned, for example, the, the CalPress series of books. Any other suggestions? Yes. So, well, I have a, a large library of books that I love. So the, the CalPress books, I think, are great. They're a great resource, and I recommend them all. I also really like this book, my new Bible, Track and Signs of Insects and Other Invertebrates. Awesome. It's such a great book. And I just finished a class by one of the authors yesterday by Charlie Eisman. And he's awesome. He's really active on iNaturalist and he's really helpful in identifying things. So I highly recommend it. Every time I open this book, I learn something new. I, I identify things that I couldn't identify before. So... I don't think I've had an episode yet where I haven't mentioned Charlie Eisman. So, really? <laughs> so the string is alive. <laughs> uh, That's funny. Yeah, he, he has such an interesting story and his focus on, I mean, it's not just leaf miners, but that's what people associate with him the most. I, I wanted to mention that that's something, that's one of those other really interesting stories that I found kind of opens people's eyes to interesting things they can find in their own backyard or in their neighborhood are these leaf miners that actually, you know, deposit an egg or, or a larva somehow works its way in between the epidermal layers of a leaf and, and it grows up inside of a leaf in the protection of a leaf. You can actually find these crazy little patterns as they chew their way through the material, including a, you know, where they deposit their frass and like all sorts of just <laughs> sort of natural history indicators and what Charlie Eisman has done is he's brought a lot of focus to that. And the book that you referenced, I'll be sure to include a link of, has, uh, has a chapter on leaf miners. But he has many other resources. He has his, he has an online guide as well that I think it's, it's continually updated. And he's discovered so many species. And through his advocacy, lots of other people are looking now as well. And there are lots of new leaf mining species being discovered all the time. So I, I just wanted to connect the dots because I think in the past episodes, I've just had some casual references to that work, but I think it fits really nicely with this concept of a bio blitz and learning to see nature in a little different way. I totally agree. And I, I wanted to say about that, that, so I have his book, it's at least 1500 pages long. So I'm glad it's online because I don't think I have space for that. But lift miners are a great example for like diversity that people ignore. I mean, these are probably one of the least charismatic 
you know, groups <laughs> you could imagine. And most people don't know they exist. But the diversity there is just incredible. And for the class that I just finished, we had to go out and take photos of leaf miners. So I had a few in mind. I already had someone, I naturalist, that he didn't have time to identify, so I could do them. And then I had some in mind that I wanted to take photos of in my yard. And then yesterday during the class, I remember that I forgot one. So I have a little snowberry plant that I planted. And in the middle of the class, I went out, took a couple of photos with my phone, and then identified them during the class. And it was a new species to iNaturalist. So, you know, and that was, I think, the second one I added to iNaturalist during the class. I mean, there's so many new things you can discover. So this is not new species to science. It's already a described species. It's just nobody uploaded any observation to iNaturalist. But you could easily describe, or I guess kind of easily, you could find new species to science of like uh, leaf miners, even in your backyard. And I think Charlie has a story about that. But it's, it's amazing what you could still find. And it's the same with gulls, just that not as many undescribed species probably as there are with leaf miners. I know I'm missing leaf miners. If, if, like, if someone like yourself or Charlie were to investigate my yard, there's probably twice as many or, or, or more uh, than I've been able to find myself. Just thinking as you were talking, I think this summer I found maybe six species of leaf miners. And that's like having not really thought about them or started looking for them until summer. You know, so perhaps there were some that were active in spring that I totally missed. And, and there's some that are certainly active right now. And I just don't know how to tune my visual reference to, to see that, oh yeah, that, that leaf damage is a leaf miner and not something else. Uh, yeah. So actually a large part of the class was like, is this a leaf miner? No, this one is not, you know, like people mm-hmm. would bring in photos of other things. But Charlie is so knowledgeable that he could tell you, oh, no, this is like that group of insects and they're not leaf miners. And this is this, this is that. Like he knows so much. Incredible. And this is the danger of this conversation. I, I, I mentioned before we started that I run the risk of going off on many tangents, but circling back, any other references or, or resources that you want to highlight? Well, there's so many great resources online. And obviously I use iNaturalist and I love that because... Once you know the name of something, you could find out more. Like once you know it's a bola spider, you could learn so much more about its biology from looking online or from looking in your books. That's where I begin, like identifying things and then learning more about them. Since we're talking about one other thing that popped into my mind that, that you told me about previously was the Xerxes Society. They have some really good webinars online as well. And uh, as we're recording this, it's autumn it's kind of an important time in backyard preparation for winter and how, how we all prepare our backyards can really make a difference in terms of overwintering success of insects. Um, so I, I know that they just recently had a, a really good webinar on that. So I'll throw that one in as well as another good resource. Yeah, they have great webinars. And I think even just thinking about our yards in a different way which I think they promote. And there's another great video. I'll try and find it and send you the link. Uh, saying how important it is that even if your little space, which could be a backyard, could be a balcony, it could be some potted plants, just adding some native plants could make a huge difference. But even leaving all the leaves, you know, 
is creating that habitat that you mentioned. It's so important. So I leave all my leaves on, on the ground and it creates such a nice layer of leaf litter on the ground and protect the ground and protect the plants and and it's beautiful and then you have all these insects but I also so yeah so this is a time to plant native plants because then you know hopefully the rain will come in and by the time winter is gone they'll get established but so I bought a few native plants recently and I'm hoping to plant them soon uh, when the first rain comes but even just having these few plants still in their pot I could see how they attract all these like native bees and and all these other insects just sitting there waiting to be planted so that's that's really incredible too yeah to autumn is one of the best times to plant and the thing I like to recommend is uh, I, I heard someone one time say leave a messy yard or, or if you don't want your whole yard to be messy like at least a messy corner or two with the leaves it's a natural mulch it's a place where insects can overwinter you know, there's so so many benefits to having a good biodiversity in your own yard. You know, if you think about the leaf, the leaf litter, then it's it's such a natural and important habitat. But now people use uh, mulch everywhere, and that's completely the opposite because you introduce this, you know, uh, tree bark coming from who knows where. And once you spread it in the yard, then you lose all these insects. Because most insects can't live in a place that has too much mulch in it. So even if you like mulch or if you want to use it, it would be great to leave some area with, without it, with leaf litter or with just uh, soil, exposed soil, because that's mm -hmm. great for nesting bees and for other insects. So variety and messiness and leave some, leave some of the dead plants as protection yes. over winter, leave some sticks and twigs and yeah, all of that in some part of the yard. So thank you for the clarification on mulch. Yeah, yeah, yet another reason why to use use the natural leaves as a mulch if you're going to do that. Mm -hmm. So to wrap up, then, is there anywhere else that people can follow your work online that you want to call out? So on my website on bioblitz.club, you could find all the events and some of the past events too, and some resources that you could download. So there's some gall guides and there's some insect guides and stuff like that like little pamphlets that you could download and print i also have a facebook page with the same name it's um Bablets club where i post same kind of events but also lots of like uh, photos from outings and some interesting stories about things i find so i think both of these would be great okay, i'll be sure to include links to that in the show notes thank you so much yeah it was really fun we live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.
one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.